Nation Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the Combination Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Groceries through Instacart, delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. And welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 605, where we heard for the first time from the family of Jim Melgar. As you guys heard, we did things a little differently. We didn't really know how to handle the bilingual interview, and uh, we made the decision to go ahead and leave the full interview in, including the Spanish-speaking parts of it. And uh, to be honest, we were a little concerned about it, but the feedback seems to be pretty good. Yeah, I think we went with the right choice there. Yeah, and, and I did notice, too, there's a lot of, it was a nice addition to that, was the fact that we have a lot of Spanish-speaking listeners. They were able to check all the translations for us, and so far, Marissa Campos, Herman and Maria's daughter, was spot on with her translations. Hopefully, she's not too mad at me for leaving in the part where she spaced out while she was kind of in the bottles over my head. Yeah, I probably should have asked her about that first Yeah, before but we greenlit that. I did tell her that we could have edited it out, but we weren't going to, and I was true to my word. Fair warning. Yep. Uh, but this episode revealed a lot of things. There were some definite game changers, in my opinion, in this interview, and it sparked a lot of questions. So let's go ahead and get started. All right. All right. Our first question comes from Erin. She says, why did Marissa call 911? Based on the timeline summary, she went outside and called 911 before they even found Sandy. Do we have the 911 tape? Thanks. We don't have the 911 tape. That's one of the, as I mentioned in one of the earlier episodes, a big blunder in this case is the Harris County Dispatch Center didn't preserve the the recording. And uh, we talked a little bit about that with the prosecutors, Brian Rosen, the prosecutor's office. Yeah. And he said, ah, that happens all the time. They don't, you know, they, they only preserve the tape if they're asked to by the detectives. So really the the trip up there, I think, wasn't necessarily with the dispatch center. It was with the investigating officer, the lead detective, which would be Ruben Curzal, because he should have immediately asked for that tape. And apparently he never asked for it. And so they, they record digitally, but they only keep them for so long. And then they apparently uh, get rid of them or delete them to make for space. Yeah, it's a volume issue, right? Yeah. And since they were never requested, they just they just went away. But the answer to the question is, and a lot of people ask this question, keep in mind what's happening. So we're, we're thinking about Sandy in the closet and Jim being dead in, in the other closet. But this scene, as I said, was chaos. And it was scary. So all of these events happened in a matter of a minute or two. And so here's Marissa's situation. She goes into the house. that They're supposed to be there. Nobody's answering. The garage door's open. That's weird. Herman goes through, lets them in. They come into the house. The whole house is dark. 
The dogs are out. It's dead silent. And as you heard her say in a previous interview, it just immediately something was wrong. It was like everything was too still. Just something didn't feel right. And then they hear Sandy screaming, help, help, help from the back. And then chaos just breaks loose. Herman takes off towards the back of the the house. Marissa is following him back to the bedroom. And he kind of disappears into the darkness. She's terrified. She leaves and runs outside. Now, when she gets outside, that's when she calls 911. Well, why? Imagine from her perspective. She wasn't calling and saying, my uncle's dead or even my aunt's locked in the closet. All she knew was they were supposed to have a dinner. They weren't ready when they got there. The house was dark. The dogs were out. Something didn't feel right. She hears Sandy yelling help from the back of the house. And then her dad is kind of springing to action because obviously he realizes something's terribly wrong. And so that's why she called 911. So she was just calling. And and basically, my understanding is saying, I don't know what's going on. Something's not right. My aunt's yelling help from the back. The house is dark. I can't find my uncle. Uh, so that's why she called 911. It wasn't because they had found the body. It was just something obviously wasn't right when they heard Sandy screaming for help. Okay, this next one's from Tina. I might have missed this in the interviews with the Melgar family, but upon discovery of Jamie, did either his brother or son-in-law ask Sandy what happened? I can imagine them saying, quote, Sandy, who did this? But don't think Bob asked this question when he was interviewing the Melgars. I did ask the question. If it wasn't on the interview, it was in the pre-interview when we were just talking before we started. But yeah, I, I did ask that, and no. And then I, I, after I saw this question, I followed up with Marissa. And no, they never did ask what happened. And that, again, may seem odd to us now, but in their perspective, as they, as they put it, everything was about Jim. They found Sandy. Sandy was okay. She's looking for her husband. She finds her husband. He's dead. She's sobbing and bawling hysterically over her husband. And you know it was Herman's brother and Maria's brother-in-law. And everything just happened so fast. And the focus was 100% on Jim. All of, it, was, it was more dealing with the shock of Jim was gone. And you know finding a, the body of your murdered husband or your murdered brother or brother-in-law, they just never got to that point where they're like, Sandy, what happened? They just hadn't got to that point yet. And then while they're still there at the body, EMS and police come in and Maria's escorted out. And that's the end of it. They were never back together again after that. So. That night on the scene, no, they never had that conversation at all. Amy has two questions. First, she asks, is there any significance that the gate was unlocked? There is. You know, in my opinion, there is, because one of the things that Colleen Barnett said was there's just no reason to rob this house. And so we're looking for, when we go to a crime scene like this, we're trying to put ourselves in the mind of a potential unsub. Jim Clemente will tell us all the time that every victim was chosen for a particular reason at a particular place at a particular time. And there's purpose behind all those decisions, whether they're conscious or subconscious. So we're looking for why was this house targeted? Why would, if this was a home invasion and it wasn't Sandy who did this, why would they target this house? And what we found is a very secure neighborhood. We already know there were security cameras on two houses that were right next door. There's alarm systems throughout the area. It's an upper upper end type neighborhood. I would say upper middle class type yeah. type neighborhood. And most of these houses are secure. Well, obviously, somebody doesn't want to, uh, if they're going to break into a house, maybe they don't want to go in through the front door where they're visible. But if they can sneak around in a back door, that may be something that would attract them to a particular house. Well, all of these houses have fences, all of them. 
and most of them i would assume have secured gates to the back door to the backyard and in this case finding out that that gate wasn't locked that could have been the trigger right there someone could have checked the gate found out that it was unlocked and that got them into the backyard the fenced backyard where they had privacy and they could you know either pick a lock or break in or whatever they were going to do in the back where they weren't visible by anyone else we don't know if that's what happened but to me the fact that their gate was unlocked is significant for that reason. Her next question is, are we looking at a potential ineffective assistance of counsel charge if the defense lawyers never interviewed the witnesses, who we now know had information refuting some major points in the prosecution's case? This was a big confusion, and I guess I should have made this more clear. The defense did interview the Melgars, and the defense did put Herman, and I believe Maria as well, on the stand. So, no, this was not a, a mess up by the defense attorneys. They did a great job, and they put them on. And, and if you have another question about this later, Herman did explain exactly what he did to me about how she was bound and what the bindings were like at trial. And I thought maybe there was a language barrier. There was an interpreter interpreting everything and translating into English when Herman was testifying. So I don't know if the language barrier played a role in... You know, the jury not either believing him or resonating with what he said. But I also know that based on the motion for a new trial, that Barnett didn't even cross-examine Herman. And so in in my opinion, that that tells me in her watching his testimony, speaking in Spanish, trying to explain what happened with an interpreter, and being in view of both him and the jury, she must have thought that the jury didn't get it. Right, that he, that his testimony wasn't effective. Right, that it wasn't landing. Right. And so she decided not to cross-examine him. And, and that also goes to show how disinterested the prosecution was in finding out what actually happened from the witnesses that were there. I mean, they never interviewed him after that night, not the police, not the prosecution, nobody, uh, not before trial. And then even at trial, when he gives his testimony that's completely contradictory to what she is telling the jury— she doesn't even go up and cross-examine him uh, to try to figure out what happened. She just lets the witness go. Okay, and Christina says, did Marissa's husband stay outside with their daughter the whole time, or had they gone in when the rest of the family went in? This info is more of me just being a mom than relevant, but I'm hoping it's something they didn't have to try and explain to their little girl. I couldn't imagine one of my daughters having that scene as a memory. Yeah, well, luckily, um, Melanie at the time, I believe, was like 10 months old. So I don't know how much memory is there. You know, she couldn't even talk yet. But um, my understanding is that Gerson was outside with Melanie in the car when all this was happening. I think that the only ones that went into the house right then and there at the beginning anyway was Herman, Maria, Monica, and Marissa. Now, it's, at some point, Gerson was inside because during the interview, you heard him kind of chime in from behind that uh, there was just like a lamp on. And then I went through and looked at the, and, and then along those lines, I went through and looked at the crime scene photos. And we're going to get into those on Sunday's episode. But I didn't even see a lamp. There, there's a light coming from the kitchen, but none of the crime scene photos seem to show which light it was. But the house was completely dark. The The dining room, the living room uh, were completely dark, but there was a light coming from the kitchen. And maybe that was a lamp or something like that. But I'm not sure. But um, as far as I know, Gerson was outside with Melanie. At some point, obviously, he must have went in, but I think it was just the four and Marissa will correct me on this if I'm wrong, and, and I'll let you guys know next week. But I think it was just the four of them that went in initially. All right, Gina says, Are law enforcement and the district attorney's office in such silos that the DA didn't realize that interviewing the family that found her was necessary before charging her with a crime? What happened to innocent until proven guilty? 
I honestly, I don't really know how to answer that. It's frustrating. Um, at some point, I'll definitely reach out again to Colleen Barnett and ask some of these questions as we learn more about the case. But I guess the best I can say is just disappointing. I mean, I understand the sarcasm that was, uh, you know, that was kind of implied in that in that question, but it's a good question. I've just never seen anything like this where they just they they went ahead with a case that was it wasn't like they had some sort of big, you know, they had DNA evidence or fingerprints or an eyewitness. You know, they had something that was like a like was like a nail in the coffin against Sandy. And so they were they were tunneling into that. They had a they had a very, very, very weak case. It was completely circumstantial. There was no evidence tying Sandy to this murder other than, as Colleen Barnett said, her story doesn't make sense. And the alternate scenario in her mind doesn't make sense. And so why you wouldn't make every effort to get as much information as possible is baffling to me. Because And for those of you that don't realize, the up, the website has been updated. I finally got some stuff over to Katie Ross, who has updated our website. If you go to the case documents for Season 6, uh, there's some photos on there that may interest you. I want to put some more up. I also, on the Truth and Justice podcast fans page, our discussion group there. I put some photos up of uh, Becky's arms bound behind her back, my wife, to show you how her arms are positioned. We just did one today with Mike showing you how the bindings looked, how they were actually wrapped on the arm. And uh, we put some diagrams up at the house and things. We'll get some of those stuff put onto the website as well. But, you know, why they would go in and not even ask those questions. And that's what I was getting at. I lost my train of thought on the website is in for season six or for episode 605 are the original transcripts of the interviews with Marie and Herman, uh, with both English and Spanish translations. And you'll see when you read those interviews from that night that they didn't go into any details. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the officers never asked them any details. They never even asked how was the chair blocking the door. They didn't ask how was she bound, how were her arms positioned, none of that. So the fact that they never went back and got any more is just it's frustrating, to say the least. Okay, and Steve writes, I'm fluent in Spanish and listened to both interviews carefully, trying to see if anything was lost in translation. When Maria stated she saw Jim's leg sticking out of the closet, she stated, quote, <laughs> this one's going to be hard because it's in Spanish. You want me to look at it? I might be able to pronounce it easier. Yeah. Sus pies amarados. Which translates to his tied up legs. Marissa didn't translate this to you. My question is, is there any indication that Jim's legs were tied? Yes, there there was, and and if you go back and listen to our some of our previous episodes, we mentioned I think it's specifically in six hundred one, but yeah, Jim's ankles were bound with a phone cord, if you remember correctly. So it's a gray phone cord, and his his ankles were completely bound. They were wrapped several times and tied up with a phone cord. So we did we did already know that. Yes, Wendell's got a couple questions. First, now that we know that Herman didn't check the back door, did anybody was it ever confirmed that it actually was locked? Let me answer that one before we get to Wendell's other questions. No one was able, I'm, I'm sure the police did, and we're going to get into that in the crime scene episode coming Sunday. But no, in Sandy's interview, she said she didn't know if it was locked. She said it was usually kept locked, and Jim was working in the backyard that day, and he went to go let the dogs in, which would be to that door. But none of the family ever tried it. Sandy doesn't know if it was locked or unlocked. Uh, so we'll have to get into that more on Sunday. But uh, I'm sure the police did at some point confirm or figure out whether it was or wasn't. But then again, you also have to remember that if it's locked when the police do their crime scene investigation, that doesn't necessarily mean that it was locked before the intruders came in, if there were in fact intruders, because they could have locked it before they left. If they were going to leave out the front or something, you know, they, they could have locked the door. Who knows? But we'll figure all that out on Sunday. 
Next, he says, how much time elapsed between when Sandy was found and when she left for her interview? How much of that time were the Melgars, Sandy included, in the house, and how much were they outside? It okay. sounded like they left the scene quickly after police arrived. So they left the house quickly at, after the police arrived. Sandy's interview started around 9, 9.30, off the top of my head. And uh, the call to police was at like 4.41. So she was there for a good four or five hours. But the rest of the family was there, too. They just were were taken outside and separated. Uh, Marissa had told me before that they were, like, keeping them all in, like, separate cars, separate squad cars when they came out. So they were never back together again, because you know, which is a good police tactic, not to let people corroborate their stories, keep them separate. Um, so throughout the course of the evening, they interviewed Marissa, Monica, Gerson, Herman, Maria. And we, we should be getting from the prosecutor's office the the recordings of all of those interviews. We only have the transcripts from Herman and Maria's interviews because they spoke only in Spanish. And so they had to get a translation done uh, for the file. So we got those printed translations in the files. But all those other interviews are there uh, up on our website in the case doc section. There's there's some of the photos that were taken by police that night. They took photos of everybody that was at the scene. Sandy was interviewed, I believe, inside the house for a little while. She was talked to, you know, there was EMS dealing with her. The police talked to her. Then she was taken outside, put in a car. Uh, they took lots of photos of her. They took photos of her hands, her arms, other injuries she had. And then eventually, you know, it was probably four hours later, uh, they eventually took her to the police station to do the interview. Okay, and his last question, would Herman be able to give a description of the man he saw with the camera? Wendell says he has some leads on stringers or nightcrawlers who were working in the Houston area around that time. Would there be any interest in showing him pictures to see if he recognizes anyone? And I assume you do know what a nightcrawler is, Bob? Just from the movie, right? The Jake Gyllenhaal movie, right? Is yeah. it they they listen to the scanners and try to be the first on the scene with to take pictures? Yeah, yeah. Um, I we need to reach out to Wendell and get that information from him because maybe uh, I did ask uh, Marissa to talk to Herman and see if he could give any better description. I talked to him a little bit about it that day, but he was what you have to realize is Herman was pretty emotionally taxed. By the end of that interview, I mean, that was, you know, with the language barrier, it's a little difficult to translate it. But for me in front of him, being able to see the looks in his eyes and his body language, he kind of broke down a couple of times. This was hard for for Herman. And so I didn't press much further once we were done with the interview. Um, but basically uh, what he told his family that I asked them to ask him for me was that he just he was kind of in shock when this happened was. So he had found the body. Sandy came up behind him, found the body with Maria. She collapsed, and she's bawling and crying, and everybody's crying and upset. His brothers, they're dead. And then he just kind of walks out and goes to walk outside, kind of, I don't want to say in a trance, but just, just in complete shock. He just found his, nobody expects to ever see anything like that ever. And on his way out, he saw the man come in with the camera. He said he really didn't pay much attention. He remembers that it was a photo camera, not a video camera. From what he remembered seeing, he said he thinks maybe the man was Hispanic, but he's not even positive about that. And he didn't have any other other description. It just it wasn't a big deal to him. He just was going outside and remembers seeing the guy coming in as he was going out. Are you looking for a trusted property insurance partner to help your business grow and stay resilient? FM Global uses science, data, and research to help you make informed decisions. By working together, FM Global can help you grow your company with confidence and deliver the protection and expertise you need to thrive. 
We're also here to help you navigate the complex world of ESG. We'll work with you to identify and mitigate risks related to natural disasters and offer solutions that contribute to a more sustainable future. Let's prepare to prosper. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Amy says, using Becky's photo example, why would it take more than one cut to undo the binding? It seems like there must have been multiple knots somewhere to require that much cutting. Okay, so she's talking about what I mentioned earlier, that I put a picture up on the fan page where I wrapped Becky up. So a little confusion there. I wanted to show the listeners how the arms were positioned, how Sandy's arms were positioned, according to Herman and Maria. And I was just sitting there Sunday morning looking through comments on Facebook, and Becky and I were sitting on the couch together. And I said, hey, let me let me wrap you up like this to show them. I was only trying to demonstrate the position of the arms. And the closest, the first thing I found in the closet was like this fluffy scarf. And so I just wrapped it around to show how they were. Well, people thought that's like what the bindings look like. That's not what that was. I wasn't intending to demonstrate the bindings. I was just trying to demonstrate the arm position. So that created some confusion. What we put up today before we recorded this, which is Tuesday right now. So you guys will, this will have been on the page for, on the, the fan page for four days by the time you guys hear this. What I did with Mike is I took a much thinner scarf and I showed with his arms in front of him, I showed how the bindings work. So I'll do my best to describe this in audio format and hopefully you guys will get it. So imagine your arms are parallel to each other, like I said. So forearm to forearm, parallel. So both arms are bent at 90 degrees. And the way Herman and Maria described the bindings were if you started at one end and you wrapped like at an angle. So say maybe you take four wraps to get from the the elbow down to the wrist and that and those wraps cover both arms and when you get to the end you go back and wrap with angles the other way which creates like x's with the first wrap all the way back so you go at an angle all the way to one end and then go all the way back and then you tie the knot back there in the corner which isn't particularly visible because it would be kind of behind an elbow but what happens then is you have two things holding that knot together one you have the knot itself and the other one is that creates what we, in the, in the fire department, when we tie knots, it's, they're called friction knots. Because there's a lot of time when we would do like rope rescue stuff where we would like wrap webbing around a tree to create an anchor point and we would never tie it because when you go around an object and then cross back over the original wrap, it creates friction where the, the lower wrap can't move because the upper wrap is holding it in place. So I think that's what happened. And, and we've also got some photos up on the website of the bindings that after they were cut. There were four pieces, I think. There was see, there was one that was sitting on the floor, two on the rug, and then the rest of the binding that were sitting there with all the cuts on it. And so I think what was happening was they just started at one end and made a cut, and it released that section of it. But because of the friction-style knot where it was wrapped over and over again, you know, the knot was all the way at the other end, and so it still didn't release. And they cut again, and it still didn't release, and they cut again. And then finally they were able to loosen it up and get it off of her. Uh, they did say they tried to pull her arms apart. They tried to slide them out, which is another good indicator of how tight the bindings were. Because if you look at your arm from your hand to your elbow, and so obviously your elbow is thicker than your hand, so it kind of tapers down. 
And so when you put the two together, they kind of as they almost like wedges if you were going to use like to shim a door or something where your your, your arms kind of make wedges from the, the small part of your fingertips up to your elbows. When you slide the two together, they, they kind of even out. But that should be very easy to get out of when you pull them the other way. The total surface of uh, your arms together gets smaller as you pull your arms apart because you get down to where you're at fingertips and it's less. I'm I'm doing this. The people on the Patreon video are seeing this, and I don't know if it's making any sense as I'm saying it in just the audio version. My point is, if this was something loosely bound, something maybe she just kind of wiggled herself into, in my opinion, as soon as you start pulling your arms apart, the height of the two arms together gets narrower, and they should have slipped right out. They tried that. They tried just grabbing and pulling, and, and they it was so tight they couldn't get her out until they cut it not once, twice, but three or four times before they finally got her all the way out. Amy also asks, what about the bruising on the inside of Sandy's arm above her elbow? She says, I don't know enough about how bruises age, but if that was recent, could it indicate a struggle between her and the person that tied her up? It looks that way to me, but I'm not, I can't make that conclusion. I'm just, I'm just not trained to do that. But what she's referring to is in the photos on our website in the case docs, you'll see the angular lines across her forearms that appear to be ligature marks from the bindings. They're just red marks where the bindings were holding her. Now, these pictures were taken hours after she got out. So it's not like these were bruises. These were marks that were staying there for a while. But on the inside of, I think, her left bicep, there is a, a, a significant bruise there. And when you look at it, it almost looks exactly like four fingerprints. You know, like, like if somebody grabbed her by the arm and all four fingers were holding her tight behind her arm and bruised the shit out of her. And yeah, I mean, to me, it's a weird place to have bruises unless it's somebody who's trying to manipulate your arms like that. It's, it's not in a place. And go on the website and take a look at it. But it's not in a place, those those bruises aren't in a place that you would expect to see if someone's in a fight with someone, you know, face to face, especially, you know, if it was her who committed this crime. And, you know, most of, of Jim's wounds were to the, almost all of them were to his front, yeah. his torso, his chest, his abdomen, his neck, his arms and hands were covered in wounds. And so with somebody in front of him who's connecting with stab wounds, it's just a weird angle for those bruises to be. To me, it look does look more, like, as she's asking, like someone was grabbing tightly around her arm, manipulating her arms. All right, Julie says, did you interview Marissa's sister? If not, do you plan to? I have not formally interviewed Monica. Monica was at the house when we did the interviews. and she was, So when we set up, we were kind of getting to know each other and setting up, and we chatted a little bit, and Monica was there participating in some of the discussion with us. But we didn't do a formal interview with her in the middle of, I think it was Herman's interview, uh, Monica had left. She had left the house to go somewhere. And so we never did the interview with her. I didn't tell her. I, I actually was planning to ask her to sit down and do a full interview to talk about her experience. But I didn't tell her that. And she had some place to be and had, and had left. So we haven't done a full interview with Monica. But I did discuss all of this with her. And from what she told me, everything she said is consistent with what everyone else is saying. Okay. And she also adds, how were Sandy's feet bound? Since we now know Dateline got the hands wrong, maybe Becky would be willing to do a photo with hands and feet bound. Are we sending transcripts of the episodes to Sandy? You know, we don't have a good description of how Sandy's feet were bound. And if you look at the photos on the website, you'll see why. So the the material that her arms were bound with was what looks like, people have described it as like a like a belt from a robe. 
The more I look at it, I don't think so. Um, it's some kind of a belt. It doesn't look like that silky or terry cloth or any kind of stretchy material. It doesn't look like the type of material that you would find on a robe. I don't know what exactly it is, but it was it was just maybe an inch thick of a cloth belt-like material. And now on her ankles, she was bound with a very colorful, very fluffy scarf, more like what I used to demonstrate on Becky's arms uh, on the Facebook photo. And because of that, I don't think that anyone could see, really tell exactly how she was tied up, if that makes sense. Because too fluffy, there's too much there. I think Maria just grabbed it and cut and got it off. They had, I know they had a lot more difficulty getting the bindings off of her arms than her legs. And then she wants to know if we're sending transcripts of the episodes to Sandy. Hopefully we will eventually. We're trying to get, and this has been a lot of my fault, we're just kind of behind, as often happens, our transcription teams you know, people get new jobs, new schooling, and, and, and they don't have the time to do them anymore. Right now, I think Britta Bliss is the only one of our transcribers that's still transcribing. And so we need to get on the ball and get other people into the into the team to transcribe. I know Mike's got a list of people that have volunteered to help. Um, would it be easy for you, easier for you if, if we had people just email again who's available now so you don't get shot down by people that don't have the time anymore? I will start with the original list because, I mean, it's sort of a first-come, first-served deal. But yeah, I think that would be great, just in case we need more positions filled. Sure. So yeah, if you are interested in transcribing, uh, shoot an email, put uh, to theories at truthandjusticepod.com, and just put uh, transcriber in the subject line so that uh, Mike knows what he's looking for. And we need to get more people in there. Um, Like I said, Britta's kind of flying solo right now. I know Sarah and, and Stephanie and Anna just is, all have other stuff going on and they're not able to keep up as much. So we're in because we're actually quite a ways behind. I don't think we finished up with season five. Uh, I know Britta has been working on uh, some of the season six episodes, but even Jesse has asked several times about the last few episodes of season three because he hasn't got to read the last few ones. So it'd be really cool to get caught up. Uh, and Katie just asked me about that last night, too, when we were talking about the website. Uh, if we're going to get these transcripts to get them up to date. So uh, we'll try to get back on that uh, sometime soon with all of your help, of course. And we, of course, we very much appreciate anything any of you guys do to volunteer to help out. And that's one of the big areas. And it's a lot of work. Diane says, did the prosecution truly not know how Sandy's hands and arms were bound? Or did they just disregard this? We know that they didn't interview her in-laws, but maybe she knew. It would have certainly felt different to her and she might have said something. Honestly, I don't think that she did know. And like I, like I said earlier, I'm frustrated that she didn't. I think that that she should have interviewed the Melgars. I think that the police should have interviewed the Melgars and they would have had a better idea. I don't I would like to believe that had that been done, they might have reconsidered taking this case to trial, but you know, maybe not. I don't know. I can't I can't speak for them. But just from our conversations with even in person when we met Colleen, she was very nice in person. She talked to us a couple of times while we were getting documents. And again, I'm very appreciative she came on the show. But when we were talking in person, she was talking about the bindings. She showed us some pictures that she had taken where she had taken the pieces of the bindings and tried to piece them together to see what they looked like. And she was kind of showing us, kind of mimicking with her hands. You know, all she had to do is just kind of twist around like this, just like she did in the Dateline episode. So I think that she, she honestly, I think she believes that's how she was tied up. And again, that that goes takes me back to maybe the language barrier, or just the way, you know, sometimes a witness just isn't a good witness. You know, that's why certain people, you know, I used to do some expert witness stuff. Um, Certain people just don't make good expert witnesses, because even if they have the right facts and information, it just doesn't resonate with the jury, or they're not good at getting their message across. And in this case, you've got to deal with two people. So you got to deal with, was Herman describing it 
properly? Were they asking three people? Was the lawyer asking the right questions? Was Herman doing a good job of describing what he saw? Because it's not easy always to describe something visually into words. And then was the interpreter translating that into English in a way that it was resonating with the jury? So I, I don't know. But I think that Colleen Barnett still, uh, still in her mind believes that she was just tied at the wrist. Karina says during the interview, did Herman or Maria substantiate Sandy's health issues? You know, we didn't get into it too much, her health issues. I mean, they talked a little bit about it in the transcripts from before, but there's there's just really no question of her health issues. She has a very documented diagnosis of lupus and epilepsy and seizures. There's not a lot. Barnett had a good point there that, you know, there's no medical records indicating that she was having seizures regularly uh, in the years before this incident. Um, but then, you know, the, the family would say, Liz, our daughter has told me, well, they, you know, when you have a, when you have epilepsy and you have a seizure, you don't call the doctor every time you have a seizure. And she was controlling them with her meds, but that doesn't mean she never had them. And the big thing is, and this kind of came to fruition when we were in the DA's office, they were asking about, you know, it's kind of tough for them to give us medical records because there's a lot of redacting to do. Uh, and they were kind of making the, Colleen was in there kind of talking about, look at this doctor's report and this doctor's report, the stuff that was in evidence that was actually submitted. So it is public record. And how, you know, there's there's just no indication that she had seizures. But this is the bottom line. Obviously, the prosecution doesn't believe she had a seizure and memory loss. Uh, the family believes she did have a seizure and has memory loss. We know that she has epilepsy. And we also know that drinking alcohol, hot water in a tub, stress, a hit on the head, any of these things can trigger a seizure even if your seizures are under control. So at the end of the day, there's there's just no way to prove that she did or did not have a seizure. And keep in mind, Sandy didn't say, I had a seizure. Sandy said, I must have had a seizure because I don't remember what happened. Uh, and, and so the, she, she believes that's probably what happened, but she doesn't remember having a seizure. But that, that's just it. Even if someone had their, their, their seizures completely under control, if her story is accurate, and she had a couple drinks, and she was in a jacuzzi tub for a couple of hours, or even an hour, or however long it was, and got out, and then someone rushed in and attacked her, and she freaked out, that could trigger a seizure right there. That's all it would take, whether it had, had been under control before that or not. Shannon says, since the dogs were found loose in the house, did they have any blood on them? Were they checked? Was any DNA found if they did have blood on them? I don't know. I mean, I've seen some pictures with the dogs in them. We haven't been through the entire police file. I mean, as we have a lot more documentation now than we had before. But keep in mind the way, you know, the way I exp describe what we do is we do everything very extremely detailed. We pick apart every little thing. But the way we do that is we do it one piece at a time. So I have a lot of the police reports. I've skimmed through them. I haven't studied them yet uh, because right now we're working on crime scene photos. In the crime scene photos, I don't see any blood on the dogs. Uh, but they were they they were definitely left in the house. They were out free roaming, and then I think I believe the police then during their investigation locked them into the office. They shut them into the office to keep them out of the way. And then Wendell adds, "Did the dogs mess anywhere?" They did, and we'll talk about that a little bit on Sunday as well. But yeah, they did. There was several uh, number two accidents throughout the house. All right, Stephanie says, "Did Sandy speak Spanish? What language did she use to communicate with her in laws?" Sandy was bilingual. She was fluent in English and Spanish, so she would use Spanish when speaking to her in-laws. Katie says, following up on Sandra's meds, if she did miss a dosage while tied up in the closet, could that explain her demeanor during the police interview? 
They said she appeared emotionless, almost matter of fact, didn't they? They did, but that's... I hate seeing that stuff when anybody says that, you know, especially mm-hmm. when it's confirmation bias after the fact. They decided she did it, and all of a sudden there's the, I think it was the EMT or one of the deputies that testified at trial that she was emotionless, there was no tears, but then they showed him, showed her her report from that night, and it said she was completely inconsolable, had to keep telling her to calm down because she was crying so hard, nothing about no, but then, you know, Oh, oh, she's the murderer? Well, then she had no tears. So uh, as far as the meds, I don't know. That could be a possibility. I didn't see it that way. I, I, As a matter of fact, I will tell you this. Jim Clemente has started looking into the case. And when he listened to the interview, he had some questions about it. But the one thing that he said that, that he noticed was her emotions were consistent with someone who had been through this before, that, that had been through this, that had been through exactly what she said happened. He said her emotions were consistent with that when he went through the interview. And also, for those of you who don't realize it, on our YouTube feed or channel, YouTube channel, uh, we did post the video of uh, Sandy's interrogation, too. So if you want to watch it. And all they have to key in is truth and justice into the YouTube search, right? Yeah, I think so. That should find it. All right. Danielle says, Maria said Sandy cleaned up before going to look for Jamie. I can't imagine worrying about that before finding out what happened to my husband. But if I remember correctly, the police said she was cleaning up when they got there. Do we know which is accurate? There was some confusion about that. That was, again, that wasn't from a police report. I think that was from the motion for new trial. Remember, all this, as I said at the beginning of this episode, all this happened in seconds. One, two minutes. And so Maria, who already knew that Jim was dead, when she frees Sandy. So now, at this point, remember, Sandy is... Foggy doesn't know what happened. She'd been locked in a closet. Her arms, she had said that part of her body was had fallen asleep, you know, one side. So they, they cut her loose. They sit her up in the chair. Maria starts helping her to change her underwear because she had, had soiled her underpants and was helping her. So all this was happening very quickly. And she said that's when Sandy was saying, where's Jim? Where's Jim? Where's Jim? So she was already, as soon as she was kind of out of her situation, she's asking, where's Jim? Where's Jim? Where's Jim? Maria was trying to deter her from going to look for Jim. She didn't want her to find him. Uh, And then finally, Sandy just pushed past her and just went, rushed out looking for him. You know, it it wasn't as we're sitting logically thinking about a calm situation where, okay, I'm out of the closet. Okay, let me clean myself up. Then I'm going to go look for my husband. That's not what happened. It was... What the what the hell happened? It's it's dark. I'm time. I can't move. My arms are bound. I'm in pain. Uh, my body's falling asleep. And then I finally get let out and they're they can't get me untied. I'm telling them where the scissors are. They're cutting me loose and 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 they're sitting me up in the chair. And you're kind of tr- just trying to figure out, like, what in the hell just happened? And and where's Jim? Where's Jim? Where's Jim? And Maria's not giving her an indication that there's an issue with Jim because she's trying to keep her from looking. And then eventually she just, and again, eventually, what, 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes later, goes out on her own looking for him. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. All right, Helen says Sandy put a jacket over Jim when she saw him naked. 
There may have been blood in or on Jim's body from the attacker and blood then soaked into the jacket. Was the jacket kept and analyzed? I believe so, yes. I was just starting yesterday to go through the uh, forensic inventory of what was taken and the testing results, but I believe the jacket was there, but we're going to do an episode on all of the evidence and forensics coming up soon, too. Okay, and our last question comes from Kelly. Has any of the stolen property, my understanding is TVs, iPad, laptops were reported stolen, ever been traced? Have any of them ever turned up? Uh, we're going to get into that later, too. It's, I, I, I mean, right before sitting down recording, I got some new information about that. It's an episode in and of itself when we get into that, and I have to, and I got to sort some more things out and do a little more digging in this. But I guess what I can tell you now is you're going to be frustrated as hell when you hear how all that went down. All right, that's it for this follow-up. But next week, Ed Eights can listen to that week's follow-up on his phone. That's right, on his new cell phone. So this is the very last follow-up episode we're ever going to drop where Ed Eights is still in prison. Uh, which is awesome. And so I want to give you guys some details for any of you that want to be there. Uh, still a little shaky on details, but this is what we got so far. Ed will be released from the Walls Unit Prison in Huntsville, Texas. From the Walls Unit, the address of that unit is 815 12th Street in Huntsville. 815 12th Street in Huntsville. It's the Walls Unit. I want to see as many of you there as possibly can be there. Here's the problem. We don't know when he's getting out on, t- on the 5th. Uh, from what I'm told, typically it's around 9 or 10 in the morning when they walk out, uh, but we don't know for sure. So I guess what I would tell people now is we can do some tailgating. You know, people want to start showing up at the Walls unit around 8 in the morning that day, and so we can make sure we're there. I will, if if something has changed, I will do an update episode like I did a couple weeks ago, just right from my phone. I'll just real quick record, hey, this is an update, this is what's happened. We'll put it out on social media. And for those of you, you know, for social media, it's in the credits. But if you don't listen to the credits, of course, Truth and Justice on Facebook, the Truth and Justice podcast fans page, there's a lot that happens in there. The show's Twitter is at Truth Justice Pod. My personal Twitter is at Bob Ruff Truth, if you want to follow along there. And also on Instagram, I do a lot on Instagram. It's kind of my personal slash show account. And on Instagram, it's at Truth Justice Pod. So any of those places, we'll put stuff out. We'll put out an update episode if anything changes. But right now plan if you want to be there when ed eights walks out plan on being at the walls unit in huntsville at 815 12th street in huntsville texas that is wednesday the 5th in just a few days and i'll see you all there Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer of Willow Photo and Designs for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And a special thanks to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month 
And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation in the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Five seconds of silence. We're hot. I feel like you're so angry right now. <laughs> I can see it. It's going to be such a great party. I don't. Why won't you come to my party? I have a fish fry to go to. That's better than the Notre Dame Michigan football party at your best friend's house. You know, I like me some Notre Dame. Right. Football. So you'll be there. You'll be there. Made plan- other plans God. for the day. <laughs> yeah. Hello, everybody. Now you're breathing while I'm talking. Sorry. <laughs> and we're so good at yeah, our job. Good. See how we're such a great team on See, microphone together? We're... we're a great team, <clears throat> you and me. That was a, that was probably the best intro we've ever done. Bob and Mike, you know. Team. We ride together. <laughs> we die together. So serious. Ten seconds of silence. <clears throat> oh. <laughs> Go ahead, partner. I'm about to cry. You know? <laughs> I'm about to cry. <laughs> it'd be a good party good party good time probably gonna be one of the best parties ever and it's gonna be for years to come gonna be one of the greatest parties anyone's ever seen notre dame football right you're just not gonna be a part of it go irish <laughs> go ahead <laughs> <laughs>